Hello, I'm Daniel Press. I'm a cognitive neurologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and the chief of our cognitive neurology unit. I'll be talking today over the management of Alzheimer's disease with a focus on some of the new anti-amyloid treatments. So I'd like to do this in terms of questions. And the first question that I'd like to discuss is, what are the main components of Alzheimer's disease management? So the main components of Alzheimer's disease management depend on the severity of the cognitive impairment. There are different stages of memory loss from mild cognitive impairment through mild dementia, moderate dementia, and severe dementia. Let me try to define some of these terms a little bit better for you. Mild cognitive impairment is a stage of memory loss where someone has memory impairment that is out of proportion to what would be normal for their age, but they're still able to do all of their day-to-day -day functions. It's an early stage of memory loss, and it can often uh, be a precursor to Alzheimer's disease, but not always. Some percentage of people with mild cognitive impairment, perhaps 20 to 25%, can actually revert to a normal level of cognition. About 50% of people with mild cognitive impairment will progress to mild Alzheimer's disease over perhaps three to four years. And about 25% or so can remain at the mild cognitive impairment stage for a prolonged time. There may be reversible causes that can be found, such as medications that are impairing cognition, major depression, uh, substance use, or sleep disorders. These are all potentially reversible causes of mild cognitive impairment. One of the major goals in our field is to try to risk stratify people with mild cognitive impairment to determine which patients are more likely to progress to mild Alzheimer's disease or some other neurodegenerative disorder. Uh, in general, this can be done by a combination of neurological exam, cognitive testing, and the use of biomarkers. Symptoms of mild cognitive impairment are mild but noticeable and uh, they still allow people to do most of their day-to-day -day functions, such as cooking, managing their finances, medicine management, and shopping. Mild dementia is a more advanced stage than mild cognitive impairment, and here there's more significant impairment uh, with day-to-day -day functions. In both mild cognitive impairment and mild dementia, one of the main goals we have is to try to slow the decline. Eventually, though, memory loss can progress to moderate to severe stages, and here behavioral issues often become a more significant problem and a bigger challenge for caregivers. Principles of management, though, really at every stage include uh, attempts to manage symptomatic issues with uh, symptomatic treatments, medications and other interventions to manage behavioral symptoms, addressing caregivers' concerns, particularly safety concerns, and one of the major issues where this comes up is particularly around driving. It's very helpful to have a care team in place rather than just a single clinician uh, managing memory loss. The next question I want to turn to is what are the pharmacologic treatment classes that are currently available for Alzheimer's disease? The first class of medications that are currently available are what are called cholinesterase inhibitors. These are medications that block the breakdown of acetylcholine and thus lead to increases in the amount of acetylcholine in the brain. They have symptomatic benefits and they can help memory loss at the mild, moderate, and severe stages of Alzheimer's disease. But there's no evidence that they slow down progression. There are three of these in this class, denepazil, galantamine, and rivastigmine. 
The next class of medications are the NMDA antagonists, and this is memantine. Memantine works by a different mechanism than the cholinesterase inhibitors. It has the potential to offer some symptomatic benefit, primarily in people with moderate to severe stage dementia, and it has not been proven to slow down progression, nor has it really been shown to be effective in the mild cognitive impairment or mild Alzheimer's disease stage. The next one I'd like to talk about are the new medicines. These are monoclonal antibodies. These are antibodies that actually help to remove amyloid from the brain. These are uh, likely to be disease-modifying therapies. They're, they seem to slow the progression of the disease, and they've been mostly studied in early Alzheimer's disease. That's in the mild cognitive impairment or mild stage of Alzheimer's disease. The first of these was aducanumab, uh, a medication that received an accelerated approval in 2021 uh, due to evidence that it did successfully remove amyloid, but there was quite a bit of controversy around aducanumab as its clinical benefit was intermediate, and there was one trial that showed some benefit and another one that did not. Because of some of these controversies, it's largely limited to research use at this point. The next monoclonal antibody to receive FDA clearance is lecanemab. This one received uh, FDA clearance in 2023, first via an accelerated FDA approval, but then receiving a full approval over the summer. And it has been approved for the mild cognitive impairment and mild dementia stages of Alzheimer's disease. The next monoclonal antibody that is moving through the pipeline is denanemab. This one completed phase three trials and is currently under FDA review for approval, and we expect some word about this approval in the coming months. There are some other additional drugs in this class that have either failed in phase three or not yet been shown to effective at current doses. These include gantanerumab, crinezumab, and solanezumab, but really currently licanumab is currently available and denanumab may become available in the near future. In addition to medicines that uh, either directly treat cognitive symptoms or medications that are disease-modifying, there are also medications that can be used to treat some of the behavioral symptoms. For instance, there's medicines that can help for agitation. Uh, amongst these, one that has now been FDA-approved for specifically this indication is Brexpiprazole. It is an atypical neuroleptic that has been shown to help agitation uh, behavioral strategies also can often help with agitation, and a number of medications are used off-label for this indication. The next area I want to talk about is how do anti-amyloid therapies differ from previous treatments for Alzheimer's disease? The reason why our field is so excited about these new classes of therapies is these are monoclonal antibodies. And that means there are antibodies that are uh, designed to bind and stick to and remove the amyloid protein from the brain. In Alzheimer's disease, there are two proteins that build up in the brain. One is tau and the other one is beta amyloid. These therapies remove one of these two, amyloid. They do not remove tau, unfortunately. But by removing amyloid, they can actually be disease-modifying or slow the progression of the disease. Unlike cholinesterase inhibitors, which are symptomatic, these medicines actually seem to change the trajectory of the disease, albeit only somewhat. It's useful to think of these in terms of analogy. In general, they slow progression by about 25 to 30 percent. 
So if you think of Alzheimer's disease gradually getting worse, sort of like a car rolling down a hill at 40 miles an hour, these therapies slow that car down to 30 miles an hour. They don't stop the car, they don't allow the car to go back up the hill, but they do slow the car down. And the reason why our field is so excited is for the first time we discovered that the car has a brake pedal, so to speak. They're intended really just for early Alzheimer's disease. There's no evidence that they work once someone's memory loss has progressed beyond mild dementia. This is one way that they differ from the older cholinesterase inhibitors, including donepezil, galantamine, and ribostigmine. Those medicines all work at every stage of memory loss, but they only work symptomatically. So they don't slow the car in terms of its rate of descent. What they do is lift the car up, put a little bit higher up on the hill, but then let go. So you're always a little higher on the hill because of the medication, but it doesn't slow the rate of progression. These newer anti-amyloid therapies differ from the cholinesterase inhibitors in another important way, which is rather than being a simple oral medication, they have to be given by IV infusion, either every two weeks or monthly, depending on the medication. Uh, these infusions take at least an hour and people need to be watched afterwards for infusion reactions. So it's a much bigger burden and challenge in using these medicines. The mechanism by which they work is a bit complicated in the following way. They remove amyloid, but really in our field, much of the cognitive symptoms seem to correlate better with tau. It seems though that amyloid is necessary for tau to spread through the brain. And what we think might be happening is that by removing amyloid, they can prevent the tau from spreading from the medial temporal lobes out into the rest of the brain. So once amyloid is present, it seems to be necessary for tau spread, and by removing amyloid, you can slow or prevent the tau spread. That's the current working hypothesis for these medications. It's also why our search is on for therapies that can remove tau, the other protein. The next question I wanna discuss is, what are the anti-amyloid therapies approved for Alzheimer's disease, but more focusing in terms of efficacy, safety, tolerability, administration, and monitoring. As we discussed so far, there are two medicines that have been approved by the FDA, aducanumab and licanumab, with the third one, denanumab, uh, currently under review. I'll focus on licanumab and denanumab because of why we discussed aducanumab is, has largely fallen out of favor. Both licanumab and denanumab significantly slow cognitive decline and functional loss both do so at about a reduction by about 25 to 35%. So people continue to decline, but they do decline slower. And both of them remove amyloid so, so effectively that they uh, generally remove essentially all the amyloid so that most of the patients, the majority of them, after 12 to 18 months will no longer have elevated amyloid levels in their brain. Licanumab uh, requires uh, infusions every two weeks, and it is approved for the mild cognitive impairment and mild dementia stages. In the Clarity AD trial, which was the large phase three trial, it showed that it slowed cognitive decline by 27% compared to placebo, and that 68% of the patients had sufficient amyloid clearance after 18 months that they no longer had an elevated amyloid level. Infusion reactions can occur, though. They occur in about 26% of patients, and uh, they tend to occur in the first two or three infusions. 
A more significant and longer term concern is around ARIA, or amyloid-related imaging abnormalities, that can occur in up to 22% of people, and we'll talk more about ARIA in a little while. The second antibody that is coming uh, down the pike is denanumab, and that was studied in the Trailblazer ALTS-2 trial. That also showed a significant reduction with a reduction in cognitive decline by about 22% and by about 29%, depending on the scale that was used, 22% slowing on an integrated Alzheimer's disease rating scale and 29% on a clinical dementia rating scale sum of boxes. This is compared to placebo. The results were similar in that all patients had quite a bit of amyloid removal, and again, the majority of them uh, converted to amyloid negative. It was again a trial in early Alzheimer's disease, that's mild cognitive impairment and mild dementia. In this trial, it differed in an important way from lecanemab in that they also stratified people based on the level of tau protein on a tau PET scan. They stratified people into low to moderate levels of tau versus high levels of tau, and they found more significant slowing in the low to moderate level of tau patients. Regarding administration, as I've mentioned, both lecanemab and denanumab are administered via IV infusion. Uh, both of them can have infusion reactions. Uh, in both cases, infusion reactions tend to happen in the first two or three infusions. Lecanemab is given every two weeks, while denanumab is administered monthly. The duration of treatment also varies. For lecanemab, the clinical trial was 18 months in duration, and uh, patients actually received it longer as part of open-label extension for many patients. Denanumab had an interesting uh, strategy, which is people got amyloid PET scans every six months, and once the amyloid PET scan had converted to a negative amyloid status, the therapy was stopped. Uh, there's a lot of people who are wondering if this strategy might also be potentially useful in lecanemab, uh, by which I mean, can patients receiving lecanemab also get serial amyloid PET scans and potentially have the infusion stopped once the amyloid has been successfully removed, but that's still at the hypothesis stage. I want to discuss safety of these medicines a little bit more. We already talked a little bit about infusion reactions. They can often be headaches or fever feelings, and these tend to happen with the first few infusions. But the side effect that I want to talk about in a little bit more depth is the more concerning one of ARIA, or amyloid-related imaging abnormality. This is a potential complication with all of the amyloid-removing therapies. I want to review what it is and what the clinical implications are. There are really two types of ARIA. One is called ARIA-E, which stands for ARIA with edema. It's a technically vasogenic edema. And the second one is ARIA-H, which is ARIA with microhemorrhages. The ARIA rates vary in the trials from 5% to 44% of the participants, largely depending on their APOE status. There are some other factors as well that we weigh in predicting the probability of ARIA. Safety monitoring for patients uh, requires regular MRIs at specific times after specific infusions. And it's really critical that patients undergo these MRIs to look for ARIA because about 75% of the time, the aria is asymptomatic, so people can have no symptoms at all, but we can detect it on MRI. 
out of all the patients being treated with these medications, about 20% will develop REA-E. And of that set, about 25% of that 20%, or about 5% overall, will have symptoms. Symptoms of symptomatic REA can be confusion, headaches, and gait difficulties, as well as other neurologic signs. In more severe cases, seizures can occur, and there even been a small number of deaths from ARIA in the trials. Most ARIA, though, is asymptomatic, and it's really just managed by observation without need for additional treatment. For licanumab, we know that the risk of ARIA increases with every APOE4 gene that someone gets. Everyone gets two copies of the APOE gene, one from their mother and one from their father. And really, the critical question is how many copies of the E4 did someone get? If someone has two copies of the E4, if they're homozygous for APOE4, they have a much higher risk of ARIA, including symptomatic ARIA. And many centers, including our own, recommend against giving lecanemab to patients who are E4 homozygous. People who are E4 heterozygous, so they have one E4 gene, or have an intermediate risk of ARIA, and people who don't have any E4 gene have a low risk of ARIA. In addition to ARIA-E, ARIA-H with microhemorrhages can occur, and they've been, they've been reported in people who are receiving aducanumab, lecanemab, and denanumab. So ARIA-H is a universal uh, adverse effect of all of the monoclonal antibodies. Because of these microhemorrhages, we have particular concerns when giving these medicines to people on anticoagulation because although anticoagulants don't seem to increase the rate of REAH, if someone was to have REAH while on an anticoagulant, the worry is that the microhemorrhages might become macrohemorrhages. In particular, we have a definite concern around receiving IV thrombolytics as one patient who received IV thrombolytics in the trial actually passed away from a large hemorrhage. So we need to be particularly cautious around using these medicines in patients who have a history of stroke or unstable coronary artery disease, anyone who might need a thrombolytic at some point. The next topic I want to discuss is biomarkers, what they are and how they can help us in the diagnosis and management of Alzheimer's disease. Interestingly, even before someone develops memory loss, someone who is going to eventually develop Alzheimer's disease can have amyloid buildup in the brain up to 10 or 15 years before their memory loss presents, which means they can essentially be biomarker positive or positive for amyloid well before any cognitive symptoms, well in the asymptomatic stage. Presence of these biomarkers without any cognitive loss is called preclinical Alzheimer's disease. Many of these patients will never go on to develop dementia. Some other health issue will arise and they'll pass away really before they develop memory loss. But being biomarker positive definitely increases your risk of eventually developing Alzheimer's disease. Examples of Alzheimer's biomarkers include abnormal levels of beta amyloid seen on amyloid PET scans, there's also a spinal fluid test for amyloid and tau that can be useful as a biomarker. And there, one looks for changes in the levels of tau and amyloid. Interestingly, amyloid levels actually are reduced in Alzheimer's disease in the spinal fluid, whereas tau levels are increased. So the tau to amyloid ratio 
and the spinal fluid goes up quite a bit. And that's really the ratio that we look for. There are also some plasma and serum biomarker tests in development. They've not yet uh, received wide acceptance as being useful or sufficient to define someone as amyloid positive, but they are improving rapidly and that may change soon. There are uh, specific NIAAA diagnostic guidelines that do not require biomarkers for the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, but that's changing and in 2023, there are new criteria that are not yet fully approved, but here biomarkers really are necessary to confirm the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease in the appropriate clinical context. That means that in the near future, biomarkers are gonna become much more widely used, particularly in those with mild cognitive impairment and particularly in those patients who might be receiving lecanemab. In addition to their role in diagnosis, biomarkers can be indicative of the presence of amyloid and they can be useful, particularly in clinical trials as well, when someone is looking to start lecanemab, denenemab, or one of these other agents, even in the asymptomatic stage. Lastly, these biomarkers can be helpful in deciding when to potentially stop the medicines. As we discussed in denenemab, one of the aspects of the trial was that once someone became amyloid negative, that's when the therapy was stopped. The final question I want to discuss is who should be really considered for these new anti-amyloid therapies? And what should I do if I have patients who I think might benefit? The patients most likely to benefit are those with mild cognitive impairment or mild dementia due to Alzheimer's disease, but particularly on the more mild end. Typically, this would correlate to someone with a MOCA score greater than 15 or higher than 15. There's really no evidence that these medicines can be uh, helpful in people with moderate or severe dementia. There's a number of steps also that need to be done in screening for these medicines. Patients need to have an MRI, partly to rule out other causes of dementia, but also partly due to look for evidence of microhemorrhages, which would put them at accelerated risk for ARIA-H. The amount of vascular changes are also tested and we uh, exclude these medicines from anyone who has more moderate to severe vascular changes. Part of the assessment also includes APOE status for the reason we discussed before about uh, excluding people who have E4 homozygosity or patients who are APOE4, E4 positive. These preparatory steps are all done uh, prior to defining someone's amyloid status, either by an amyloid PET scan or by CSF uh, prior to beginning these anti-amyloid therapies. Patients also need to be able to get regular MRIs as they will have five MRIs over the course of the first year of this medication, one for baseline and four for monitoring for ARIA. The baseline MRI also needs to be carefully assessed to be sure that there are not more than five microhemorrhages as five or, or less are required before beginning these therapies. If you have patients who you think could meet these criteria and are interested in exploring these treatments, the really the best next step would be to refer them to a specialist, a clinic that is or center that is able to manage lecanemab and has an active lecanemab or denanemab program. With the traditional full approval of FDA in 2023 of lecanemab, uh, insurance coverage has started to get sorted out. Uh, Medicare has approved lecanemab as part of its uh, approval with 
uh, with evidence collection, which means that patients need to be entered into a Medicare-approved registry, but under that circumstance, Medicare does cover lecanemab. Uh, patients may still uh, need to pay copays, though, depending on their specific insurance situation, and other carriers are still working out specific policies for these therapies. Before I finish, I just want to give you some takeaways. Uh, the first would be management for Alzheimer's disease should ideally include both a combination of medications where appropriate and non-pharmacologic interventions, particularly for symptom management, for maintaining safety for patients and for support for caregivers. The Alzheimer's Association is really a wonderful resource. They have an excellent website with a great number of uh, resources on it, both for primary care clinicians, but also for uh, patients and caregivers. It's an excellent resource for more guidance on Alzheimer's management. Some of these newer monoclonal antibodies that we've discussed are different in that they are considered to be disease-modifying therapies rather than just symptomatic therapies. Uh, this means that they can actually slow the progression of the disease and slow the cognitive decline by reducing the amyloid burden. The approved anti-amyloid therapies as of this recording are aducanumab and lecanemab. It is believed that these newer anti-amyloid therapies are most likely to benefit patients in the more mild stages, as, we, as we've discussed, in the mild cognitive impairment or mild Alzheimer's disease stage. And they seem to be particularly more effective at the mild cognitive impairment stage. Selection of patients for anti-amyloid therapies requires careful consideration. There are a number of steps that need to be taken. First, to establish the stage of memory loss, to be sure that someone is in the mild cognitive impairment or mild dementia stage. They then need to undergo APOE testing and MRI imaging. And finally, they need to have amyloid status confirmed either by amyloid PET scanning or by CSF testing. I hope you found this information on new Alzheimer's disease treatments uh, helpful. I want to thank you for listening to this Prime Med podcast, and I hope you have a really great day.